when we look at in general, like COVID, I think was a really good example of how we saw the effect of not having enough mental health practitioners, um, an overtax system of mental health providers. I mean, 55% of mental health providers in certain surveys reported having a worse mental health, which is understandable considering the stress that everyone was under during that time. And um, in that study, about 37% of them intended to leave the healthcare workforce in five years. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Welcome to Further Together, the ORU podcast. As ever, I am your host, Michael Holtz, in the communications and marketing department at ORU. And this week, my co-host, back for another discussion about preparedness month, is my colleague, Amber Davis. Amber, welcome back. How are Thank you? Thank you so much. <laughs> We're recording yeah, this on Monday morning, so... <laughs> yes, let's go. <laughs> we're starting off. We're starting off the week with a bang and having a great conversation today um, with Matthew Schnapp, one of our colleagues at ORAU, and we are, as I said, it's Preparedness Month, so we're having um, another preparedness conversation on a couple of completely different issues. We're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, um, and I think perhaps most importantly, the mental health issues, um, the kind of crisis confronting our country, but also um, being mindful of all of that in all things preparedness. So, um, Matthew, welcome to Further Together. We're glad to have you here today. Yeah, thanks, Michael and Amber. It's a complete privilege to be here. So, Matthew, first off, um, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for ORU. Sure. Yeah. So my background is in nursing and public health. So I spent a number of years working at the local level in community health departments, um, had the you know, ability to work with H1N1 epidemic when it launched off of Ohio's scene. And so got familiar with preparedness in that sense. So not only looking at the clinical side in the public health setting, but then also how does that ramp up in meet the needs of the community when an emergency happens. And so I took some of that experience, moved into the, the public health sphere over at North Carolina Chapel Hill and uh, studied health policy there for a little bit. But a lot of the work that I do coming into ORAU is related to health education and looking at how we can tailor our interventions to meet those needs uh, for our clients. So most of that work, to answer your question for ORAU, tends to stem around uh, radiation. So we've done a lot of work with the radiation studies section at CDC, but we also, um, I've also had some work with vaccination uh, preparedness and looking at how that um, can be promoted in the hospital setting. And just here and there, you know, trying to make sure I work with colleagues and uh, you just keep learning along the way. Right, right. And doing some really important work at that. So, um, yeah. You know, as we yeah. as we've mentioned before, preparedness is one of our sort of long held and 
and sometimes more um, unspoken <laughs> capabilities. Um, so mm -hmm. this is definitely an opportunity for us to shine. And um, so Matthew, I appreciate bringing um, your perspective to the conversation that we're having today. So thank you for being here. Yeah, you bet. So let's just start off <laughs> with, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, as we've said, it's preparedness month and um, one of the issues that we wanted to talk about in this conversation is is really the mental health kind of crisis, mental health issues that um, we're dealing with in this country. And just, I guess, wanted to start with, you know, from your perspective, where are we? Um, and then preparedness-wise, you know, how is that taken into account in, I guess, the planning process? Yeah, so the, I think walking into a topic like that from a clinician standpoint, from a public health standpoint, it is completely heart-rendering. You know, I mean, it's heart-rendering. It's just very, it's apparent when you look at the statistics. I mean, nationally, I mean, CDC states on their website too, it's like one in five adults live with mental illness in some way, shape, or form. And when we're talking about serious mental illness, the idea that what you are dealing with interferes with daily life ability. Um, that number is one in 25, you know, and I think a lot of us have members of our family who we know who have gone through a stressful time um, just in recent years due to the COVID pandemic too. So um, mental health is a serious issue in the United States. And um, I saw that as a clinician um, when I was going through rotations in the hospital and we see it, um, every day, um, just with the people that we interact with. And so while we do have some lessons learned, um, you know, the problem doesn't stay at a national level either. I mean, everybody in every state um, has experiences with trying to come to terms with dealing with mental illness and stress and depression. Um, you know, we, a lot of us work in Tennessee, right? So. Mm -hmm. Tennessee um, is not immune to that. Uh, we have, you know, a large, large population population of our individuals um, expressing anxiety and depression. Um, some of the stats that we saw actually, so about forty three percent of individuals back in just last couple of years, twenty twenty one, have experienced some form of anxiety or depression over the course of the year, and that's in, in a population of over. 6 million individuals in Tennessee, that's about 3 million individuals. So there's a lot of suffering that's going on. Mm -hmm. I wanted yeah. to jump in and ask you, because I feel like one of the things we, we talk about, you know, the, you know, the different expectations that, you know, society has really a very vulnerable population for suicide mm -hmm. is men. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it seems if, if you don't study it and you aren't really familiar with the statistics, you're like, wait, you know, men, it seems like maybe women would be the more emotional, you know, but it seems, and I know I'm speaking broadly, I know those are, you know, stereotypical things I shouldn't put on anyone, but, um, you know, it just seems like, wait a second, men are the ones who, you know, I think it's like 80% of those who commit suicide are men. I, again, I'm, I was just trying to prepare for this. Can you talk to us about, you know, why are men the vulnerable ones? And I think specifically it's white men. Yeah. So, the statistics are, are pretty scary in that front too. Um, you know, some of them older men, 
um, some of the statistics that I've seen are that almost 20% of suicide deaths, which account for maybe about 9,000 in 2020, um, you know, were for older men in general. Um, and I think a lot of those attributes that lead towards individuals um, considering suicide um, deal with loneliness, um, deal with ability to um, find those connections. And we saw an increase in that, um, especially during COVID when we all had to stay within our bunkers. Um, you know, those over 65 have the highest rates of suicide. Um, and unfortunately, when you look at attempted suicide, one in four individuals who are over 65 who attempt suicide actually are successful versus I think the statistic is something like one in 200 for individuals who are younger. Um, so it's, it's a problem because if we don't recognize some of the signs and if we don't take it seriously, um, it is a very real situation that can turn very tragic very quickly. Um, and sometimes it's not a like crisis emergency situation where people seem fine and then they are no longer fine. I mean, sometimes that's what it is because we, we're not observing and we don't, those feelings aren't being shared to us because there's a large stigma about having thoughts of suicide. But um, it just points to the need for us to take a very empathetic and um, clear approach on trying to have those conversations, asking about not being afraid to talk about um, thoughts of suicide and do you have a plan and knowing what some of those resources are that you can turn to. And Tennessee also suffers with this as well. Um, even just about four years ago, the statistics are that Tennessee has a 29% higher suicide rate than the nation. So um, you know, it's it's not a problem that is unique to any state, but some states definitely are suffering um, more than others. Um, that equates to about a thousand people lost to suicide uh, this year. I mean, if you take a, a step back too and, and look at look at the problem nationally and the numbers nationally, I mean, you have one in 11 individuals that, uh, not one in 11, sorry, one person in the U.S. dies every 11 minutes, you know, so we don't think of it that way, but it's a very serious, um, serious problem. And I think it points to some of the other topics we'll talk about today, which is the need to be very, um, brave when we talk about our feelings and the importance of having a trusted space to be able to um, share the things that we're dealing with and that leads into mental health that leads into stress reduction when we talk about preparedness and response in a crisis that um, means having an awareness of how acute that need is going to be because those statistics are in general mm -hmm. i mean that doesn't account for acute stress related to a disaster related to um uh, a work crisis. You know, we talk about disasters in a broad sense happening to a community, but families experience micro crises all the time. If you lose a job, if you lose a loved one, right? You know, so as individuals get older, we talked about men, older men. Mm -hmm. um, there's a less likeliness to talk about how we feel. There is a increased stigma of being perceived as weak. Um, as you start losing individuals that you might have been close to, or your significant others, I mean, those play a factor. So. It's such a complex problem, um, but at the same time, understanding that problem is part of trying to improve the outcomes for them. And um, yeah, 
I was going to say one more thing. And I'm sorry to keep jumping in. Like, um, you know, you loneliness. And I think Michael and I have had a conversation before this began about how he has seen that, in, you know, in different communities he's in. Because if we point to, well, it's socioeconomic or if it's, you know, we could kind of identify. But loneliness, I mean, that's pervasive. That's in all people groups and all demographics. I mean, you can't, you know, so, so again, I feel like that's just really important that we talk about that and try to identify that and try to shore up connections. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of ties back to when we talk about what the problem of mental health looks like, um, because we had, I mean, I mentioned some national statistics and statistics related to Tennessee, um, you know, but there are those nuances of how do we look at the problem from um, like a socioeconomic perspective, from a rural urban perspective, from, you know, we're going to be talking about DEIA. So how do we look at it in terms of all the different breakups of uh, race, ethnicity, orientation, all the gender, you know, so it's, there's so many ways that this problem um, and the solution need to be considered. And so like when we look at, in general, like COVID, I think was a really good example of how we saw the effect of not having enough mental health practitioners, um, an overtax system of mental health providers. I mean, 55% of mental health providers in certain surveys reported having a worse mental health, which is understandable considering the stress that everyone was under during that time. And um, in that study, about 37% of them intended to leave the healthcare workforce in five years, you know, as a statement. So when we're talking about walking into this situation, which is complex, which has these nuances, and then also facing a situation where clinicians may not be around in the numbers that we need them, because we never have enough in an emergency, let alone in good times. And, um, you know, the problem becomes, becomes really issue. The issues become very uh, challenging. You mentioned socioeconomic factors. So um, when you look at getting mental health care, um, at least in Tennessee, there's a number out there saying almost 40% of individuals didn't seek that mental health care because of cost-related issues. And um, Omni has a really good spreadsheet out there that details some of the numbers, but another shocking like perspective on it is that if even if you do have insurance that if you're seeking mental health care, you're going to have like a six times chance uh, of being forced to pay more because you're going out of network. And so even when we try to prepare for some of these contextual situations, um, the challenges remain and it's, it's really difficult to um, prepare ourselves and to treat ourselves and to feel like we can float. And the loneliness factor, when you, um, you know, when you consider some of these breakdowns of demographics and socioeconomic status. If you're working two jobs to try to make ends meet, you're not going to have time or energy to build the social connections, you know, to, I mean, you're so dependent on your nuclear network um, that the resiliency factor of individuals who are living in an area who have acres of distance between each other, you know, you might all know each other, but that can be a good thing and a bad thing related to stigma and, and uh, everyone knowing everyone else's business because the community is so small. Um, or it can be a very big supportive factor because people then might come in and check on you. Um, and so those differences between urban, rural, socioeconomic status are really, really important. Um, so yeah, I'm glad we're going to like have that as a highlighted topic for our discussion. Well, Matthew, I wondered if um, you talked about Tennessee 
Tennessee's rate being so much higher than kind of the national average, is that because we're such a rural, are there any insights, I guess, into why it is so much higher for Tennessee as opposed to the national average? Is it that mix of rural, urban, you know, we have a lot of rural area in the state and you know, does that help, I guess, feed the loneliness, the mental health issues? Are there, or are there other things, you know, at play that maybe we need to be talking about? So basically, um, when we look at trying to understand some of those things, it highlights the importance of building on an approach that takes into some of those considerations, the local context um, related to um, the things that can lead to suicide. And some of that is mental health, some of that is substance use, some of that can be um, access to providers. Um, and so we do know that in Tennessee, um, there aren't enough mental health providers in general. Um, about 46% of the individuals living in Tennessee are in an area that don't have an adequate supply of mental health providers. So it's that additionally is about 3 million people. And so um, the factors can be, can be many, but. Um, One of the things that, you know, I know Michael and I had mentioned uh, when we were discussing and preparing for this is, you know, we talk about uh, DEIA, you know, diversity, equity, and accessibility, but really what sometimes I think simply when that comes to mind, people think about, you know, race and ethnicity and like all that kind of talk. But really, I think a lot of the diversity is talking about that socioeconomic landscape and different geographical. I mean, that's what makes us diverse too. you know, different walks of life. Um, and so when you look at, you know, we're talking about Tennessee, you know, Oak Ridge, you know, ORAU, we're, we're in Tennessee. So we're talking a lot about Tennessee, but I feel like, you know, we do have, um, you know, in Knoxville, for example, there are people who know nothing about living on the farm, but then you know, 20 minutes outside of town and we've got a lot of farmers and people who that's the way of life. So um, there's a lot of diversity and again, different walks of life and and so just in hearing you talk about this, we've, we've talked about loneliness um, and I'm wondering, and I don't know, um, you know, how much you've been able to piece this together, but I mean, if we look at just how society works now with the rise of social media and, you know, maybe more uh, rural areas having access to, you know, internet and stuff that they didn't maybe 10 years ago or whatever, um, you know, has that impacted again the way we interact with each other is there you know I'm, I'm just wondering if there's anything like that at play because again we talk about DEIA and it's it's good to look at that as a whole and not just the the typical things that we look at so so do you have mm-hmm. any thought through that I'm sure you have what what are your what can you share <laughs> yeah well so one of one of the benefits of <laughs> not that there's many benefits to COVID but one of the things that COVID helped us with is the idea of having mental health be a service that can be provided digitally um, through services like that. And so I think that when we're talking about in your situation, what you're talking about with rural areas or areas that might not have an adequate amount of access to services or the costs of seeking services due to stigma, due to, um, it could be economic, you know, ability to pay for services. It could be um, just, you know, time, you know, if, if your job is taking up all of your time, you know, due to working on a farm, it's going to be hard to pull away and actually take the time you need to recover. 
you know, a lot of these make it challenging for individuals who are experiencing um, any kind of mental illness to seek treatment. Um, and so that loneliness factor, the isolation factor, um, access to care, um, all of those are important and helped to be addressed by some digital communication tech. Um, one kind of challenge that exists within it too is that it can be a challenging area to navigate, right? Um, yeah, and especially if you're not really used to dealing with health. I mean, no one, no one I know like searches health websites, like insurance websites and hospitals, like for fun, unless, you know, they're really good <laughs> issue, you know? And so let alone if someone is so busy and maybe doesn't have the context of looking at their health in a very analytical way or trying to really solve something if they're not familiar with it, it can be really convoluted to try to find help. And when we're talking about mental health and the coverage of mental health, I mean, we mentioned how often your, your in-network providers might not have resources available to you, so you have to go out of network. Or um, individuals who just don't have insurance, right? You know, the while there are resources that exist, navigating those resources can be extremely challenging. And if you're trying to do that in an acute setting, like where you have a crisis or you are experiencing symptoms enough to where you're actually trying to search for some of this, or if you're trying to do this for a loved one, um, you're probably doing that amidst other family responsibilities. Um, it can be really difficult to connect to care. And usually that care can be delayed because of the amount of time and energy it takes. Um, so it is extremely important to understand some of those factors and kind of bringing it back to preparedness too. Um, it's really amazing to me when I participate in exercises and and um, preparedness efforts that bring people together from different backgrounds. You know, and for example, uh, we had a recent activity that allowed us to delve into how would preparedness look like if we're trying to test people to say shelter in place. And it's amazing how the factors that you need to consider differ in rural areas when we talk about where population is going to go, especially if you have a, a decent migrant population working on farms, you know, where are they going to go, especially if their state, the residence is going to be on that farm or nearby. Um, what are some of the considerations of would people move or, or follow instructions when they know that their livestock and their, their, um, their method of living is at risk? Um, or when we tell people that shelter in place and um, you know, they have to go to work because the workplace might not accept that this is something that's necessary and you either show up or you lose your job. And if that's the job you're depending on, well, then, you know, there are so many factors that um, individuals needed to plan around, needed to prepare for that um, the more energy and attention we can f apply to not only preparedness, but the culturally aware preparedness and the nuanced preparedness that DEIA type activities can provide, it becomes so important to make sure that we're all talking together and to make sure that we're learning from each other to be able to provide the most effective response. So, yeah. Matthew, in terms of um, culturally aware communication, how mm -hmm. there are there are a lot of communi communities, right? I mean, as as you're talking, there are you know so many disparate groups that have to be addressed to mm -hmm. help people be prepared and be ready, and not only in advance, but then when you're in the middle of the crisis. Um, I know that some of the work that we've done in terms of doing outreach to 
some of those disparate groups, um, you know, homeless populations and rural populations. How how does all of that work from a from a, a thirty thousand foot perspective? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, and and the honest truth is, it doesn't work well if you aren't preparing for it and you aren't taking that effort. Um, you know, taking like a step up. I know we're talking about mental health. You know, there's there are lots of systems that have tried to be put in place. So one of the more recent ones is the 988 uh, suicide hotline. You know, that's a good example of a national level effort to try to provide a framework that still needs to be operated by the states and local environments, but to try to coordinate and promote the communication um, for. You know, improving at least the aspect of access to suicide care. But when we look at trying to understand the many different groups that have had long-standing historic inequities and mistreatment, there is a um, continual need to apply that on every different level. So um, some of the work that we have been doing um, that I know you know, relates to some of these groups. I mean, a couple of years ago, we had the chance to interview a number of individuals experiencing homelessness. So groups that deal with those jurisdictions, there's, you know, one effort that we had uh, taken that dealt with individuals living in Ohio and Colorado and New York and uh, I think California. And so it was really important from that work to hear how important the need for trusted messengers were um, and consistent messaging throughout local organizations. Um, but the reality of it is that we don't do a great job communicating unless we prepare for it and understanding how that communication differs um, and can be stigmatizing is also really important. So that's where some of our work in the opioid field uh, related to addiction activities comes into play where trying to look at um, how do journalists um, deal with the topic of addiction in the reporting and how do we prevent stigmatization and re-stigmatization um, with the way that we're talking about reporting, uh, about addiction in articles that come out. And furthermore, how do we help train individuals to be more aware of um, how we use social media to communicate about different types of um, activities. So Oral has had, you know, some role in um, looking at some of these populations, but what is really apparent is in 2021, um, there was a national executive order, right, to promote DEIA. And so um, there's a recognition that we don't do this enough on a national level, and that even though the whole um, process of trying to improve diversity, equity, inclusion has been going on for decades, um, there is still a huge amount of ground to cover. And so part of what that looks like on a national scale is um, taking that order and operationalizing it. And what that means is we see a lot of our agencies trying to create um, employee resource groups. And so that is a type of group that will centralize around a specific topic um, or or attributes, so women in the workforce, or it could be individuals of color of different types or individuals who might be LGBTQ. Um, so you have these groups within an organization that forms so that you have an increase in awareness, an increase in um, 
communication and advocacy for the perspectives that we might not hear in a common working environment. And then with some of these groups, they help to create um, create plans in place for each agency. So each agency is responsible for coming up with a DEIA strategic operation plan. And so that helps to try to promote strategies of collaboration and engaging stakeholders, using data to try to measure what needs to change and try to encourage leadership to improve the programming that they need to take to, to do that. Um, and that kind of approach, tying it now back to preparedness, I think is really important because there are the way that we talk about trying to meet the needs of an individual. So often DIA takes its context in a workplace environment. And in general, those tend to be really structured. You know, you kind of know what your, some of what your expectations are, whether or not you're have accessibility to positions or inclusion in certain groups, that's part of what needs to be improved, or if you even have a diverse workforce to begin with. But those same aspects come into play when we talk about emergency preparedness um, and dealing with crises and areas where we need to work together in informal organizations to try to improve the health of individuals. And so when we talk about how we understand some of these concerns, those same concepts of what are the groups and instead of employee resource groups and organization, we can talk about community organizations, faith-based organizations. We can talk about uh, nonprofits that deal with the needs of the community on a very granular level and trying to promote some of those relationships so that um, we build trust and we build an ability to work together when, you know, we need to have that kind of collaboration in a very fast pace. And the infrastructure for that doesn't come automatically. It needs to happen um, on an ongoing basis with a lot of attention and intentional activity um, over time. So it's a problem that starts not and has perspectives on a 50,000 foot view, <laughs> 30,000 foot view, you know, why it's the realities of it are always going to be local and the response we need to provide to it needs to be local and translated down appropriately. Hmm. And some of, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, what I like about some of the work we've talked about in terms of working with people experiencing homelessness or people experiencing substance use disorder is we go basically to that population, those populations to, you know, how can we best communicate with yeah. you as opposed to it being top down, um, which, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for that, but there's also what's the best way to get a message into your hands or to, you know, speak in a language that you're going to understand and respond to. Um, yeah. And I know that work wasn't related directly to preparedness, but I think that's an important component of that communication, right? Is how do we, how do we communicate in a way that, that when the time comes, you're going to respond to it and, and be ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hundred percent what, an aspect of the need is. And so much of what's amazing about the topics of DIA, emergency preparedness, um, and where they all come together is the need to talk 
the need to reach out and to understand and the need to take action, right? Not just to have that understanding, but to really operationalize it, to demonstrate how we're taking it seriously and we're making our own steps in a considered way. Um, in general, like we mentioned with uh, people experiencing homelessness, having a trusted messenger, that recurs throughout any type of intervention that you want to have an effect. Um, how do you understand the local context? How do you work with trusted agents, which is a very like technical, <laughs> weird sounding word, but how do you work with people you trust that you care about, that you know care about you? Um, if I'm not hearing that from somebody that I know has my back or I feel has my back, then um, I can't expect those messages to be heard. I can't expect any kind of action. And that's in the best of circumstances when people have the resources and the time to actually change, right? Because change is hard. And so in normal times, change is hard. In a crisis, change is even harder. So CDC has a really good resource, crisis uh, emergency risk communication. So how do we take steps to provide empathy, to provide clear information, um, to try to work with individuals who are in those communities so that what we talk about um, reflects their understanding of their realities. Um, we're not just saying shelter in place. We're understanding what does that mean for an individual and where are they going to get their food? Who's going to check in on their kids? You know, how are we showing that we're prepared to address their needs and not just provide an instruction? And the more you can do that at a time, the more important and uh, effective uh, the interventions will become. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, we're talking about preparedness and, and all the way these all link and, you know, they're all interconnected in these webs, if you will. But, um, you know, I also imagine kind of what you're talking about with with doing this research and getting to know the best way to treat it. We've got to figure out these root causes, right? You know, like that we've, we've talked about op opioids and homelessness and, you know, all these things, loneliness, like all these things that, you know, there's deep roots and how we you know, unearth those. Um, I mean, that it's a huge body of work, but it's so important as, as we move, you know, into the future. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of good resources to, to try to think through how to approach um, what I consider an empathetic connection that allows for having the information and to, you know, build that relationship that you can leverage and work with. You know, how do I how do I make sure I have these relationships in place with communities? Not any of that, but how do I practice working together? Because it's one thing to know who to call, but if you've never called them or you've never gone out and had a coffee with them or a tea or something, you know, like, or if you're the right age of beer, right? You know, like, how do you, how do you expect to work well together, especially when things are so dynamic? And so, you know, common strategies for promoting equity, for promoting relationships deal with, um, building that trust, building that connection and, you know, defining and measuring the needs together and making sure we all have a common operating landscape. Um, in healthcare, it could be just understanding our patient populations, who is coming into our hospital, what are the language needs, what are the patient navigation needs. Um, you know, one of the barriers, you know, to just receiving healthcare is what happens when you leave the hospital. Sometimes the hospital is the only time you interact with, you know, a healthcare system, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So understanding that is incredibly huge. Um, there's some national like agency level efforts that, um, you know, are helpful. CDC, for one, their hub is uh, Office of Health Equity. They have a core strategy, which stands for Cultivate, Optimize, Reinforce, and Enhance. And so that's 
I think one example of an agency trying to, in the context of engaging communities and partners, and in, in the context of the science of how do we talk about health and health equity, um, having a little bit more formal process for developing the language and the data collection methods and analysis for improving the science and how do we strengthen the participation of communities related to, in their context, especially with preparedness month, the social determinants of health. So um, leading into preparedness with preparedness month being September, um, the Office of Readiness and Response has taken a really good step to define how they'll talk about the activities related to preparedness month and they've centered that around the social determinants of health which deals with a lot of these levels that we've already been talking about how do you understand economic context um, cultural context um, functional context within an environment and then how do you identify the gaps and build partnerships and relationships and they have a really nice infographic that maps out some of the things that they've wanted to talk through but that also is not necessarily deia that's you know just a way of looking at problems from a multi-level process, but it can be absence of DEIA, even though it's aligned in the sense of wanting to understand community context, you need to also feed into you know, what is really important about the, you know, disparities that have existed systematically, right? And so uh, structural inequities, you know, so things that you are still making sure you target in a preparedness level um, if I know people are going to respond in an emergency, it's going to hit certain groups disproportionately. So how are we also taking that into consideration? Not just the community engagement, but also trying to prepare for some of those inequities so that we can help those individuals recover faster and not have a serious effects, mental health or otherwise. Matthew, what are some of the other agencies that are working on this? I know DEIA is a, a whole-of-government issue, but in terms of preparedness specifically, who, who are some, you mentioned the CDC, what are some of the other agencies that are involved in this work? Yeah, well, if we just take a standpoint of, when I look at DEI, that is such a widespread perspective that needs to be taken for any intervention, any kind of situation that we're dealing with, there's that level. So in reality, it, it is an every organization problem and it is an every organization task. Um, so what I like about the idea of having those DEI strategic plans and the idea of agencies like the CDC having perspectives that try to include multi-component factors to health issues like the social determinants of health. Um, I then take that and I look at, okay, well then how are they applying it or how could they apply it to different areas that have need? And so if we're talking about mental health, um, one of those realities is we talked about cost. We talked about access. We talked about um, trying to understand local context. Um, nationally, there's a trend of trying to promote a, a structure called the Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic, um, CCBHC. And it's a model that uh, basically provides a clinic that's open 24-7, if I'm understanding this right, 24-7, <laughs> and that allows you to have a sliding fee scale. And like, so health clinics and health service centers like that to try to help improve mental health and reduce some of the barriers to access um, that you would see within the mental health sphere. And so where those get located, who gets funded, a lot of those calculations are based on 
uh, perception of needs. So this is an example of where a DIA needs to be very present to be able to advocate for and to be able to help facilitate access to resources like that. Um, but lots of different agencies are involved in it. That's that's a natural uh, funding perspective. But um, HHS, they um, even just last Friday, they've included um, the hard of hearing and deaf populations in their 988 suicide hotline. So if you are someone who has those situations, then this service is now more accessible to those groups, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was just back on Friday. That's so they, news. yeah, that's, it is, it's great. You know, and so it's not going to change overnight, mm-hmm. but it's so important to make sure you see some of these stepwise mm-hmm. um, pieces in play. Um, I will say a couple others. So um, the VA does a great job just in general with awareness for PTSD, disaster distress hotline, um, suicide, you know, is definitely a factor. Um, in fact, um, a decent significant portion of the individuals who responded to the 988 um, came from a veteran perspective. And so, you know, very important group to make sure it continues to receive those services. Um, but common ones, uh, common agencies that you'll see participating, SAMHSA has a ton of resources on this, um, and especially related to preparedness and disasters. They have the DTAC, which is an assistance center model, and a whole collection of resources related to behavioral health. And um, the CDC has a couple of really good mental health resources as well, such as the uh, Community Stress Reduction or Community Stress Resource Center, and also a, um, a couple of articles just dealing with stress um, in an emergency and just in a traumatic event. Let's talk about, you know, more specifically in terms of preparedness. Um, and the acute crises that that we're seeing more and more um, in terms of preparedness. How, um, in an emergency, can the system be ready for um, DEI issues, mental health issues, um, to help be responsive in those times of crisis? Yeah. In, in the perspective of DEIA, Internally within your own organization, you know, there's the common themes of do you have the correct representation by individuals who you're going to be serving? Um, are they actually able to participate? So are they not only being included, but is there an equitable ability to affect choices and decisions? So a good example is you might bring more women into a traditionally male-dominated area, but there's always the imposter syndrome of one individual, like a representative individual in a sea of a different demographic. And when that one individual is expected to raise points um, and to have those met fairly and to be heard clearly and to be acted upon, um, we'd like to think that that happens in a very easy and flowing way, but A, that's intimidating. And I know, you know, that person is capable of it, but even when they do vocalize it, there can be a huge amount of resistance to it being heard. And so how are we trying to take models to internally when we have these discussions? If some other perspective is brought up, how do we set up um, not an echo chamber, but um, like mentor trusted model of you say something that's different. Okay. I acknowledge that I heard what you're saying and we try to work it into the conversation and it doesn't just get said. You have radio silence 
and then the conversation moves on. And you might even approach the topic again in a different way. And the idea might come up in a different context, but it ex- gets traction now because someone else said it. A lot of times making sure that the perspectives that get brought in and the insight and the intelligence that gets brought in from our activities to be more diverse and inclusive, um, that the action on some of those items are equitable. Um, and that if we do that, trying to take a perspective of them, what is the accessibility and impact of some of the things that we're trying to accomplish? Are we actually doing what we're saying we're trying to do internally as an organization? In terms of reaching out to communities, having those discussions, um, understanding the local needs for your community, because again, emergencies are going to be local. So what works in your city is going to be different than what works in my city, let alone a state. So understanding the granular context of what you're going to ask people to do in an emergency and what are you going to say and how are you going to say it is so really important. Um, so from DEIA perspective internally in a group, making sure that people planning and participating are conforming to the considerations we know to be important with DEIA. But as a method overall, when we're talking about, say, social determinants of health, and we're talking about longstanding structural biases, um, how does that take shape in the community and how does that play out in terms of what can people afford, what do people have access to, and trying to make sure that those systematic contexts in your community are also being accounted for with disaster planning, with crisis management. Um, and so not just how how is the team that's going to answer these problems representative and conforming to a model that really shows you know a better outcome. I think it's diverse teams that are diverse on three types of order, like gender and age. And I think there's one other, like, make better decisions 87% of the time, you know, when compared to an isolated, like, single population group or an individual. And so how do we make these better decisions um, as a team working on the problem? But then also how do the players in the environment operationalize those issues? And so sometimes the way that things get operationalized outside or you might have the best intentions, but when you work with another group, they might not have the same level of maturity or sophistication with addressing needs on a DEIA perspective or uh, in a socioeconomic framework. And so making sure that these conversations and terms we're using and what we expect of individuals can be worked out ahead of time is really, really important. Um, so that's, that's DEIA. But when we're talking about individual crisis, um, this kind of leads into some of the, the topics we, I think, initially talked about when we were <laughs> just talking about podcast, which is uh, things like psychological first aid, right? Um, it's really, we talk about DIA and the conversations and the action that needs to happen in that front. But when we look at some of the critical attributes that we need to bring to the effort, an attribute of listening, an attribute of empathy, an attribute of wanting to help um, and acting on that help, um, those key things are what people lack in an emergency. Um, they are afraid, they are stressed, they do not know how to handle the situation or they're going to handle it the best way that they know how. And whether they admit it or not, we all need help. And so over the course of time, there's this concept called psychological first aid, which is a general um, evidence-informed or um, I guess a practitioner-informed approach that tries to 
empower responders and citizens, so you and I in general, with a basic set of competencies that allow us to help somebody who's experiencing a crisis with the thought that if we do this, it doesn't replace the need for mental health. But what it does do is prevent that loneliness. It prevents that stress, at least from escalating beyond a point because we feel we're alone and we don't know what to do. Um, and it empowers individuals to try to prevent more serious forms of um, mental health complications from forming. So PTSD, um, stuff like that. Whether or not it leads to that is is still and always going to be evaluated. But the idea of trying to intervene quickly and trying to match people where they're at um, is incredibly important. And so then tying it back to the DIA, well, who is going to approach you? Is it going to be somebody you can relate with? Is it someone you're going to listen to? Where are these people going to come from in an emergency? So if we don't plan ahead, if we're not prepared, even a concept like psychological first aid, which has shown to be so important, um, especially when we're looking at COVID and burnout and um, the needs of individuals experiencing a chronic, like horrendous crisis like COVID or racial inequities or things like that. How do we approach them in a way that marries the, the two really important concepts of dealing with an individual where they're at listening to them and trying to provide care and practical assistance and stabilization as we can as we can in an emergency that's so important um, in the acute phase but i would argue that it's also incredibly important just as a daily life practice as we try to become more capable individuals of meeting the needs of our society on that on that point in terms of meeting the the daily needs houston is a city that seems to have done this psychological first aid thing pretty well. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, what they're doing? I know one of the things that we talked about was, you know, they recruit volunteers to be part of their sort of psychological first aid brigade to help people um, in those times of, of crisis to be, as you mentioned before, the phrase trusted agents, to be those trusted agents for people perhaps experiencing um, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it is an approach that is incredibly important because when we talk about crisis, um, it's very traumatizing to be approached by a police officer you know, and to have, you know, let alone if you are under the effect of a certain substance, if you are functioning with a mental health condition or you're under you know, an acute amount of stress. And so the concept you know, that Houston is taking up, the idea of equipping first responders, police with the tools to try to um, approach in a more understanding way, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, because if you can avoid an escalation of those emotions, um, if you can navigate ahead of time, what are we going to do with individuals who have a certain level of um, use, you know, or a certain level of a substance in their body? What is our approach to try to de-escalate conflict and try to, in a safe way, understand the situation that we're walking into, completely understanding that, you know, it's a very dangerous thing to respond to an emergency, you know? It's an approach that has gotten some traction. And actually in August of this year, the HHS awarded over $5 million um, 
basically for a program that is um, called Mental Health Awareness Training. And so it's a grant program that does exactly what we're talking about here, which is how do we equip not just the first responders, but also teachers and other caregivers to try to understand some of these challenges and not exacerbate the problems um, that are existing and that do need attention, but can become extremely complicated when you confront that with a, a very stressful situation, like being confronted by a police officer mm-hmm. by, um, or that would benefit from the understanding that a teacher might have as a perspective of what a child is going through or what a young adult is going through. Um, could be in terms of suicide. It could be in terms of, um, cognitive differences of how do they participate in the school system and if they're getting stressed out why is it the case school bullying isolation you know some of these topics keep recurring so i'm really excited that hhs is prioritizing that um, in terms of taking the example of what we're talking about with houston and trying to apply it in a broader sense because the more we're prepared to deal with these um, situations in that empathetic and um, careful way the better outcomes we can expect Mm. It's good. Matthew, by way, <laughs> these issues are huge, and we could talk about this all day. Um, but just in Maybe terms an of, hour, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. In terms of, you know, wrapping things up, is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we cover in this conversation? Um, well, I know... We're talking about preparedness month. We're talking about mental health. So I think we'd be really remiss to not reemphasize the importance of the suicide prevention hotline. Ooh, yes. uh, the right. The importance of talking about um, mental health, not in the sense like I'm going to sit you down and Michael and Amber, let's talk about mental health. Like, how, but the real conversation of how are you doing? Yeah. You know, like, just how are you really? <laughs> yeah. Like you know in in approaching it in a way that doesn't make it feel like clinical, but makes it feel caring. And so to go through that 911 or 911, if you have an emergency call 911, but if you're having a suicide emergency called 988. Um, yeah. And it's important to know that you can also uh, text that number as well. So you don't need to just call if you're not a call with the guy on the phone kind of person. Even though it's beneficial, you can text and you can also go online at 988lifeline.org. Um, I think another thing to throw out there too is you know, stress is not an isolated event and it comes in a context. And so United Way's two-on-one network is really helpful for identifying just various needs and resources, including mental wellness. And so if your stress is caused by a certain situation, sometimes having those broader networks and trying to understand the root causes as we're talking about of where is that stress coming from, um, being know- knowing how we can connect individuals with some of those other resources are really, really important too. Um, and I think just in general, um, you know, making sure that when we see someone in a crisis, going back to site first aid, be brave enough to take action, be brave enough to care, ask about how they're doing, try to keep them safe, care about the people that we meet. Yeah, and, I like that. Um, be brave enough to care. Mm. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Matthew, yeah. to that end, just a question I should have asked earlier is, you know, as an individual, what should I be looking for um, 
you know, I, I, I realize, you know, on the one hand, it's if, if I'm going to ask you the question, how are you doing really? I need to be prepared <laughs> for that answer, yeah. right? We all should be prepared for a real answer and not just, you know, hey, I'm doing fine. And, you know, sort of the, mm-hmm. the Sunday church response to how are you, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, to expect a real, you know, um, answer to that question, what do I need to be looking for if if I need to, you know, be present to help somebody? Right. So we talk about loneliness, right? Um, the thing that I look for is really being aware of my tendency to try to help and meaning that I have an answer, mm. right? So really clear that when I'm, when I want to help, it's not like I'm going to solve your problem, you know, necessarily. It's, am I listening? And so often, it's really interesting if we look at our conversations, how when we talk with individuals and they're sharing a problem, it's very, very easy for us to want to offer a solution. It's really easy for us to try to say, oh, I understand. Or like, oh, yeah, and here's my experience, right? And try to interject with what we know. It is so much more important to listen and to acknowledge the feelings of others, you know, to make them feel heard versus just providing a response. And so there are a number of things that you can look at that would cue you off to, you know, someone having a different behavioral pattern that might indicate that they're in stress. But when we're talking about responding to that stress, um, helping in the context of really trying to be there with that person and just giving them the the feeling that you can trust me, that I'm not going to judge you, that I am here for you. And you know, not trying to solve your problem because, I mean, a lot of times people are capable and they just feel like no one cares, you know, and they probably have thought through a lot of these things themselves. So if, if you need, if they have an idea of how they need help asking them, what can I do for you? You know, they will likely share it, but so often it's really easy for us to fall into that pit of let me provide what I think works and what I know is going to be important. And so much of this whole discussion is about getting away from that and trying to start listening instead of just doing something. And going back to the earlier part of our conversation, if, you know, with the loneliness crisis that accompanies all of this, if you've got someone who's listening, if you're that person actively listening, um, it's a start, right? It's a start to, to dissembling some of that loneliness. Sorry, Seth, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. I mean, it's across all the issues we're talking about, like, you know, DIA, mental health, preparedness, you know, like being responsible of it. So couldn't agree more. So we've talked about some heavy issues over the last um, hour almost. Um, Matthew, last question for you. What brings you joy? Mm, That's awesome. Gosh, uh, you know, I think honoring the situation around me, and that sounds really like philosophical, <laughs> but it's, you know, what brings me joy is, you know, not only just taking a moment with, you know, like we're doing right now and just getting to know each other, um, but also um, just appreciating how much uh, we don't know. And that that's not a scary thing and how much we can learn and how much we learn every day and really 
taking joy in the fact that um, we have a mind, hopefully, that works some of the time. <laughs> you, know, you know, we have maybe a modicum of attention, but that there are so many little ways in our lives. Um, it could be through our kids, through our friends' interactions, through just, just what we eat, you know, or, you know, trying to honor the fact that we live in a very fortunate life in a very, you know, and we have challenges. But um, what brings me joy is how do we help others to um, be more um, themselves? You know, how do we help to, um, and I, I do a lot of work with Girl Scouts. My daughter is 11 and she's uh, in the Girl Scouts. So we just had a Girl Scout meeting and we're preparing for camp. And, um, you know, how do you help these individuals grow to become their better selves? You know, how do you give back and how do you, how do you take the attention that you, and the intention to care about the things around you? And so often it's just the little things that, you know, can really make a difference in someone's day. So I think that's what brings me joy. Um, plus ice cream. I love ice cream. That's <laughs> <laughs> always a good answer. <laughs> I love that answer. I love both of those answers. Um, yeah. So one more time with the resources, because I think we'd be remiss not to close, not to close them out. Again, sort of reemphasizing that 988-988-Suicide-Lifeline um, at 988, whether you call, whether you text, and then 988-Lifeline.com. No, oh, sorry. Lifeline.org online. So um, resources are available to help if you are experiencing um, thoughts of suicide. So please, please get some help. Matthew Schnell, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Um, it's been a great conversation. It has been <laughs> certainly a bit heavy, but I think it's extremely important, yes. um, especially in the context of where we are today with all things mental health and, you know, being and just being prepared to deal with all of that in a crisis. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. sharing your um, time with us and for talking with us. Yeah. Thank you both for your time, Mike Lambert. It's great to spend some moments with you and uh, can't wait to look forward to the good work we'll all do together. Absolutely. Yes. Matthew Schnapp, thank you so much. Everyone have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU, and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.